Philemon is just one chapter, and this personal letter that Paul scribbled in a hurry, he sent with a runner to the town where Philemon lived. So why is it even in the Bible? We need to ask God what he's saying to us. Why did he put this letter in the pages of our Bible? The letter's written to a slave owner, saying from Paul, I'm sending him back to you. Because when Paul met the slave, he became a Christian. When Paul said to him, where do you come from? He told him his story. Then Paul asked him, who was your master? And the most amazing coincidence took place. Paul said, I know your master. He's another Christian. Then he said, you've got to go back. Which would have been terribly difficult for Philemon to do. So Paul sent this letter to soften the reception he would get. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So here Paul starts with a beautiful greeting, and he mentions the church in Philemon's house, and he tells him that he's praying for him always, and acknowledges that he's indeed refreshing the hearts of the saints. And then he says this, That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of your love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I could demand it, but I want you to do it because you want to do it, not because I force you to do it. He goes on and says, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. There is reproductive life in a man of God. He calls Onimus his son. This is how you feel towards a person that you've led to the Lord. You've become their spiritual father or mother in a sense that you helped bring them to birth in Christ. And you can continue having children until the day you die in the Lord. And I just think that's an incredible thought. Paul tells Philemon, you won't just be getting a slave back you'll be getting someone that's now part of your family, who you'll love. He's your brother. I also want to mention that some people may think by Paul sending him back that he was supporting slavery. But in that day, out of millions of people in the Roman Empire, one in every three was a slave. They had no rights, not even the right to life. They were completely their owner's property. Paul was injecting an attitude which regarded a slave as a person to be loved into the system of slavery. That's truly the only thing that can cure man's inhumanity towards another human being. This is the way that Christians are supposed to operate, to get into a situation as the salt of the earth, like the light of the world, and inject love into that situation until people begin to see people as people. Paul is saying to Philemon, receive him in a different way. See him as a person that Christ died for. Can you actually go on treating someone poorly when you see them like that in your heart? And I see that there's a perfect picture of sin here. When we sin, we are runaway slaves. The Bible says you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. 
If I run away and decide to live my life my own way, I'm useless to God and I've done what Onimus has done. I've stolen my master's property. The Bible says you're not your own. You were bought at a price. I've stolen the time God gave me when I go off to try to do things my own way. He meant for my time to be used for him. I've stolen the money he gave me to use for his purpose. I've stolen the gifts he gave me to use for me and my benefit. I've stolen the very life that he gave me and I've said it's mine. I want it for my own pleasure. Jesus said whoever tries to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for his sake will preserve it. And in reading between the lines and behind the lines here in this story of Philemon, I see also the punishment that's due. What do you think was the punishment for a runaway slave? The lightest punishment a master would give if he was really merciful would be to brand the slave with the letter F on their forehead. It meant fugitive, runaway. This way, if it happened again, people wouldn't take them in. But the worst punishment and the normal punishment was death by crucifixion. If Paul had sent Onimus back to a man who wasn't Christian, he would likely have killed him. But I have to say that that's also God's punishment for runaway sinners, crucifixion. In other words, it's a crime deserving death. I want you to notice some things that are happening in Paul's letter that parallel what Jesus did for us. First, Paul says, if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. In Colossians 2.14, Paul says, Christ has taken the bond written against us and nailed it to the cross. Jesus has written his own name across my debts to God, and he said, paid. If she owns anything, Father, I'll pay it. Paul is even prepared to plead with Philemon for forgiveness. He says, forgive this man. He's run away from you. Yes, he was bad, but forgive him. Not only do we have in Jesus someone to pay what we owe, we also have someone to say on our behalf, Father, forgive them. Do you see the pattern that we're given here in this book? What God is to me, I'm supposed to be towards others. What God was to Paul, he was to others. This is exactly what Jesus says to the Father about me. Receive Krista as myself. Paul says to Philemon, welcome him as you would welcome me. I see here a perfect picture of salvation. Salvation is composed of justification and sanctification. The first is a change of status, and the second is a change of state. The change of status is from a slave to a daughter or son. When you and I came to Christ, we were justified. The slave became an adopted child, an heir. You're no longer a servant of God. You're a son or daughter of God, freely living within the family. Onimus came back as a son, not as a slave. The change of state is from being useless. He became useful. Onimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. Philemon 11. The process of sanctification is to change me from being a useless creature to a useful woman of God. Paul uses a beautiful little phrase, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. He's essentially saying to Philemon, perhaps you could think of it this way. He ran away from you for a little while so that he can now be yours forever. If we've been in the far country for a little while, we may appreciate the Father's house more when we come home. When you come back, you'll find all the happiness that you actually went into the far country to find, but it was at home all the time, where you should have been. But when you come back, it's not because you have to. Now you come because you want to, so you come back forever. This is the lesson I see for us in the book of Philemon. So, like I said, 
kind of short, short book, but um, I just wanted to see if anyone has any thoughts or anything that, you know, jumped out at you and listening to that, um, that you might want to share before we look at Titus. I love uh, your analysis there of uh, Onesimus being an example of us in slavery, Paul being an example of Christ mediating, and, and Philemon being, you know, uh, the uh, a stand-in for the Father. Praise the Lord. I love the types and shadows, you know, that we have not only in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, in some of these stories, we just still see God drilling into us the same theme, you know, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what, you know, the example of the cross, we see it over and over through different analogies in scripture. So I, I agree. I, I think that is um, really a unique feature of uh, Philemon. The story doesn't end because now it's our part. We have received forgiveness from the father through the son. So now he expects us to forgive, you know, and I love how Paul could have based on Paul's position and authority in the kingdom, but also in the lives of these individuals, he could have easily demanded, I need you to receive him as a brother in love. And da, 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 da. He didn't. He, he asked him in love to do it, but he didn't demand and try to force the issue legally with authority in Christ. He could have. He appealed to his compassion and his love and reminded him that though he was literally the owner of the slave, he too had been a slave to sin and Christ had freely had freely delivered him and received him and forgiven him. Now pass that on. And that's exactly what God expects us to do is to pass it on and on. And and so important what you're saying, because, you know, with the measure that we use is the measure that gets used back on us. You know, if we don't forgive, that's we've talked about it so many times before. The Bible says we will not be forgiven. That's the biggest motivator. I think it should be to any of us, um, just plain and simple, that we have got to work on that at a true, authentic heart level forgiveness. Because uh, you're right, freely we have been given this forgiveness. And I think what you shared as well is um, important, you know, that aspect of he could have demanded um, th that he take him in and that he treat him a certain way, but it would have been a different result in the heart. Of, of that person, of, of um, Philemon. And that's not what Paul was after. Paul was after what God wanted, which was, was restoration on both sides. And, and really there was just so much more good that took place because of the way he was patient and gentle and really demonstrating fruit of the spirit, you know, because he could have, like you said, he could have just um, demanded that this be done because of his authority and so forth. Um, and he might not, he might've been even just impatient in that he didn't have time to get him to understand, but really patience is a fruit of the spirit, you know, mm -hmm. and so there are things that we need to recognize. I'm, I'm recognizing it, even as I, I hear it again for myself, you know, that, um, taking the time, um, to care about all of the parties involved, to bring unity and to bring whatever, to be a, 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 a peacemaker, you know, to bring a peacemaker and mm -hmm. to have the heart of God 
um, regarding everybody so that as much fruit can come into a situation. So it was just a good illustration. And I think that's the point. And that's why that book is here for us because everything in scripture is meant to be an example for us. And so those are a couple of life examples that we are to take and apply. Praise the Lord. The book of Titus is just three short chapters and it begins like this. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. The NLT says it this way. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. So in the Roman Empire, the lowest position on the social ladder was the slave. But in Crete, which is where Titus would receive this letter that Paul was writing, the highest person on the social scale was the ambassador, the representative of the emperor, the sent one. And the word apostle comes from a Greek word apostolos, meaning I send. So let's think about this. Paul is saying that he's at the bottom of the social ladder. He's referring to himself as a slave, but a slave of God. And he's also referring to himself at the top of the social ladder when he calls himself an ambassador, a missionary of Jesus Christ. And as Paul said in his testimony in Acts 26, he witnessed to both great and small, to ambassadors and to slaves. He himself was both, and so are you. As a Christian, you're a slave to Christ and an ambassador for him. This means that we should have concern for everybody, regardless of what level of society that they think they belong to. Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, mostly in the personal letters that Paul wrote and in Acts. Both of his parents were Greek and he was uncircumcised. There was this big controversy as to whether Christians should be circumcised at a particular point back in the early church, and Paul went to Jerusalem to fight that battle out. But he took Titus with him to test the church of Jerusalem to see if they would refuse Titus' fellowship on the grounds that he was Greek and uncircumcised. So this is a personal letter to Titus, and we should ask, why is he writing? And verse 5 tells us that. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So there's a theme in Titus which is concerned about two things, sound doctrine and good deeds. In chapter 1, he talks about sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the church. In chapter 2, he's talking about sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the home. In chapter 3, sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the community, at your daily work. Verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So if your beliefs aren't sound, then ultimately your behavior won't be good when it's lined up against the truth. Belief affects behavior. Doctrine affects your deeds. We could look at family after family where grandparents or great-grandparents followed sound doctrine, and we'll see that the result was that they produced good deeds, good works. But then their children, if they ignored the sound doctrine but managed to keep doing some of the good things, by the third generation, their children or grandchildren wouldn't have sound doctrine or good deeds. If you lose the first, you'll eventually lose the second. And we see this example throughout the book of Chronicles and Kings with how easily the entire culture was affected by the influence of the king and his doctrine and deeds, whether they were sound or not. 
And we also see this playing out in our generation. Just think back 20 years and consider the massive and rapid changes that we've seen. This is why it's so important that we gather together, that we study the Word of God, whether it's a Bible study online or with your church fellowship, but staying within the family of faith and learning the right way from the Word, not from other books, but from the Word. And so Paul goes on to say here in Titus, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So in verse 12, Paul is actually quoting a pagan prophet of Crete when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It was something that had been said 600 years before Jesus about the Cretan people. Now imagine trying to start a church in a community like this with members who in their daily life had been dishonest liars and cheats. They were lazy gluttons and cruel evil beasts. Paul said this testimony about these people is true. So going back to why Paul is writing to Titus, saying this is why I left you in Crete, he says it was to amend and appoint. So this little group of Christians had no elders, no spiritual leaders. They were wide open to the wrong influences. And the cure for false leaders is good leaders. So why hadn't Paul already appointed them? Because remember, in our last session, we discussed the books of Timothy, and Paul had said that you should never appoint elders in a hurry, but with time and understanding. So Paul would either wait 12 months and go back to a church and then say, okay, now here's a person who's obviously qualified to be an elder, after they'd had time to evaluate that person. Or he'd send someone else. He might say, Titus, I want you to stay in Crete until each one of those churches has its own elders. And this is the pattern of missionary work that we see in Scripture. A missionary goes to a place to preach until there are believers, and then they help them gather and then learn to worship and pray together regularly. But as soon as possible, they should appoint elders and the missionary should move on. Paul continues in this letter, saying, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. To be defiled isn't outward, it's inward. If your mind and conscience are dirty, then you're dirty. If they're clean, it doesn't matter where you are, you're pure. When Paul said this, he was contradicting the ways that the Jews thought of purity. He was saying purity isn't a matter of washing your hands or where you go. Purity is a matter of having a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Holiness is inward and not outward. Purity is of your heart and your mind. So what he's saying here is that when your heart is truly clean and you don't have wickedness ruling your mind, then you can go into bad situations and not be defiled by them. For instance, if you're going to minister to people in bars, that's not good for everybody to do. Everybody won't go in with the right motives or with the right heart. You know, they might not be strong enough yet in the faith. Don't get so close to the edge that you fall in when you're trying to go help maybe a backsliding brother or sister in Christ. But here it tells us, but to the pure, all things are pure. So Paul goes on to say in verse 16, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, 
and disqualified for every good work. So Paul speaks of those who are disobedient because their minds and conscience are corrupted. Even though they claim to know God, their actions deny the Lordship of Christ. This is relating to what they profess to believe and what they actually do, meaning that their behaviors and actions reveal what they truly believe or what they don't believe. Paul says, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. He's saying, deal with it. It might need a surgeon's knife, but cut it out for the health of the body of Christ. He says in verse 11, they need to be silenced and that these people are in the ministry for money. It's a career, not a calling. And honestly, I have to wonder about that when we look around at many of our Western churches today and the fact that church has become big business. You know, how many pastors are in it for the money and a career and not necessarily the calling from God? Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Notice in verse 15, with all authority. Some people have the impression that a Christian teacher is giving advice and that it's up to you whether you take it or not, but that's just not so. A Christian teacher isn't supposed to let anyone who hears them disregard what they say. You aren't saying what might be done. You're saying this is what God tells you to do. The New Living Translation says it this way. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. Let no one disregard you. This will involve exhorting and reproving. I wish it didn't. It'd be a whole lot easier if it didn't. I wanted to bring up the actual meaning of this word to reprove or rebuke. Exhorting means to encourage someone, but reproving or rebuking them means to expose or to prove them wrong. And the Bible says that there are times we're supposed to do that. In chapter 3, Paul is telling Titus to teach the believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, even to the Romans. He says, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what's good. Jesus even said, if a Roman soldier compels you to carry his bag one mile, which he had a legal right to do, you should carry it a second mile. This isn't actually popular among those who want to stir things up politically, but Christians shouldn't be the vanguard of political agitation unless we're being told to do something contrary to our faith then we have to say we must obey God rather than men. So to summarize chapter 3, Paul is teaching that we need to witness with our lives, whether that's towards rulers with submission or towards an employer with obedience and readiness for honest work. But that also means that if someone asks us to do something dishonest, we have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And finally, he says, we shouldn't speak evil behind someone's back or to their face, but instead, we should be gentle and courteous towards them. Then he explains why, why we shouldn't behave towards people this way, regardless of who they are and what they're like. And it's because we were once just like them. We once added to the problems in life 
just like they're doing, instead of solving them. The best way to be patient with someone is to remember that you were once just like them. Have you heard that quote, but for the grace of God, there go I? That's true. And Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Titus 3.8. The New Living Translation says it this way, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Then he says it again at the close of the chapter, and he says here, it's up on the screen in Titus 3.14, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. The Bible is clearly teaching us that we're to apply ourselves to doing good. That means to give thoughtful, diligent attention to doing good things. They don't just happen automatically. We've actually got to have some intention behind it. We've got to be purposeful about doing good things. And there's a lot of people that think and will preach, you don't have to do anything. You know, it's not about works at all. And the reality is, we don't have to do anything to earn salvation. We are justified by our faith through grace, and it is a free gift. But we are also in a process of sanctification, and the works actually prove that our conversion at salvation was authentic. Our works are not the root. They are the fruit of our salvation. So be careful, Paul says, to do good works. That's part of it. That's why it also tells us in the Bible, faith without works is dead because our faith is proven through our works. So don't let someone deceive you by their empty words that aren't backed up with Scripture when we look at the totality of what Scripture has to say to us. In verse 9 and 10, Paul writes about those who prefer to talk rather than to act, who prefer to spend endless time discussing things rather than doing things. He told us that being devoted to good is profitable, but now he's telling us what's unprofitable. He says, but avoid foolish and ill-informed, stupid controversies about genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And after a first and second warning, reject a divisive man who promotes heresy and causes dissension. Ban him from your fellowship and have nothing more to do with him. So in conclusion with the book of Titus, we need to be aware and we need to beware. We need to beware of doctrines that have been watered down that aren't in accordance with godliness. We need to heed the word of God in its fullness, not in bit by bit, but when we look at all of it in totality. Well, there is an awful lot going on in the book of Titus, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts, anyone who would like to share. Paul is saying to uh, Titus is reminding him, yeah, you know, uh, people will say, well, you know, I'm not a, a, a I'm not as Christian as you are. I say, yeah, probably more so, you know, all of us have our struggles, but they can say that because they see my actions, but they don't see my thoughts. I have to be conscious of my own thoughts and be intentional about doing good and what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, and the scriptures tell us that, you know, it says to take every thought captive and bring it into submission to the word of God, bring it into submission to Christ. And then to it talks even further and says, think, 
so this is basically a command for us to actually use some self-discipline and <laughs> make yourself, just like Paul said, I beat my body into submission. You're making yourself think on whatever, whatsoever things are holy and lovely and good and acceptable. These things we're to think about, these things we're to meditate on, which really is just showing us exactly what you're say, saying. The thought life that we have is important because those thoughts will become something. If we continue to think on them and meditate on them, something is going to sprout up and grow. So we've got to get captive and get rid of it by submitting it to the Lord and say, no, I reject that in the name of Jesus. And not every thought we have is our own thought. Sometimes they're fiery darts that are coming from the enemy. And you're like, I know I, that didn't, that came out of nowhere. That is not me. And I reject it and renounce it in the name of Jesus. And then sometimes it is our own thoughts. Sometimes it's our selfish ambitions. It's our whatever, our wrong track thinking, you know, that has us in the wrong place. And so we have to just line up again with the word and say, no, I'm going to think on whatsoever things are holy and lovely and good. Praise the Lord. You know, and then in here, I think, there's some hard word in here um, yeah. where he's talking about, you know, we don't want to um, really confront um, the brethren. And, and this has got some places where Paul is saying, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned, you know, and it, it is starting out with the conversation because he says, avoid having like disputes and over genealogies or disputes over the law because they're unprofitable. And then it goes on to say, reject this divisive person that's causing heresy to come into your fellowship. Like if it's causing confusion, because who's the author of confusion? It's the enemy. So obviously the enemy is working through this person. And if they're not willing to heed the wisdom and submit to the authority that that leader's been given under the Lord or submit to the word of the Lord when they're given the word of the Lord, then it tells us what we're supposed to do. Reject them and not to even allow them. It, he says, ban them from your fellowship in the in a, the NLT version. It's the way that it's written. And so that's a hard, that's a hard thing. You know, yeah. um, are we going to do that sort of thing? You know, but, but again, it says there's a, there's an order in doing it. It says after um, you've confronted it. That is a very, very, very good point in reference to bringing correction. I think that overall, the church has gotten to the place where it no longer wants to do that. It no longer is allowing the word to judge what is actually of the word and what isn't. And I agree with you. There are things that we need to bring correction in private, you know, and the model that, but then there's some other things that if it is said and it is absolutely wrong and nothing is said in a group, then the group will walk away believing that that must be the truth because no one may comment to that. And I believe as the church, we need to become more like Paul said with the Bereans. By the time God, Paul made it to the Bereans, the Bereans were testing everything that Paul said by the word. We don't do that. There are some stuff that come out of people's mouths that you know that is not the word of God. They made that up or they are filled with something that's not of Christ and the devil is speaking. That's all I'm saying. 
and we don't say anything. And then people go around and now it becomes a new doctrine, a new gospel or whatever. And it's why it has watered, has been watered down. But Paul is also the one that, that admonishes us that we are to judge certain things, that we're to judge them. He said, you know, you're going to judge angels, but you can't determine whether what so-and-so said or what's being preached or taught came from the word or not. And we don't say anything. We just sit there and be smiling in agreement. Well, you know, when I was in the army, they taught us this. They taught us that silence is agreement. So if you know that something is dead wrong and you don't say anything or someone is doing something that is dead wrong and you you just agree with that. And guess what? Now, every other person that sees it, that is there, and I'm going to use me as an example, say, yeah, you know, Command Sergeant Major was there. She didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. So this must be a new standard. This is good to go. But, you know, we're witnesses. And we're to bear witness and testify about Jesus, about the kingdom. And if we don't say anything, then we just testified that that lie, that abstraction, that that came from the pit is now what is true and it's not. Well, didn't uh, Paul even do that with Peter? Yes. <laughs> confronted him and uh, had in front of everybody and had to correct him and bring correction. Cause he's like, I'm not, not we're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. He's like, he's like, look, homies, y'all have missed the mark. I'm going to have to go ahead and confront you with everybody. Peter, look, you didn't did it such that now Barnabas, who's been living among them for how long, he didn't win a fool too. So let me straighten this out right now. Amen. <laughs> that's why I believe this admonishment is here because that's what happens. It corrupts and it um, distorts the gospel little by little in the seeds of the hearts of the people that are hearing it, that maybe aren't behind the scenes at all and don't know that correction's taking place, but they just heard something wrong. And so now they repeat it to someone else. So you're right. And um, we've, we've really got to just continue to let this word wash over us and remind us as the body of how we're supposed to operate with one another and to have integrity, you know, because we're stewarding what has been entrusted to us, just like Timothy, you know, Paul said to guard what has been entrusted to you, you know, and that's why we, he said, reproof and correct. And all doctrine mm -hmm. is meant for that, you know, because this is the standard and the standard can't be watered down. I think just, just to add an underscore division in the body is a big, big, big deal to the apostolic authority in the church. You know, Paul is saying, you know, avoid these controversies. He's actually talking about Jewish genealogies and Jewish controversies about the law. Paul is an he threads the needle throughout the New Testament where he's he's confronting Judaizers that are trying to make Gentiles Jews in Galatians. And here he's doing it in Titus again. He's saying, you got to correct these guys and you need to cut them off because what they're doing is they're coming in and they're they're bringing division and confusion. And so Paul's a Jew correcting and saying, we got to cut this nonsense out. But he's also correcting Gentiles who think God is done with the Jewish people in Romans. And he's and in, and in Ephesians, he's teaching about God's heart. But he makes this, you know, the the the, the statement in Ephesians, like do everything you can to maintain the bond of peace and unity. And I think in the spirit, 
you know, Jesus said, the world's going to know you're my disciples by your love. Division and disunity break apart what the Holy Spirit's trying to build in the Ecclesia. And Paul's going to war not against people. He's going to war against the spiritual forces that that disunity is opening the door to come in and, and the, the repercussions of that disunity and what that will do in the Ecclesia. And so our disunity and discord can be a real problem, but I think we just completely, um, we minimize it in the church. We're so used to being um, loud and opinionated and say what you think, tell how you feel. It's all about you in America. Um, we, we like, think about COVID or the political election in 2020, you know, how, what were the, re, what was the spiritual fruit in the church? If the apostle Paul were to come and visit us, the church in America in 2020, looking at what we were arguing about in the church and in our own families, what would he be saying to us? He would have written a letter. I think he would have written the church, the church in America. We would have gotten a letter. But if we don't have love, we can do all these things and it profits us nothing. And so I believe that Paul's motive, the Holy Spirit's motive, is to teach and to train us into love and to, to correct and to bring people out and saying, look, guys, we need to stop arguing about these things. Let's come back in. Let's have a prayer meeting. Um, let's wash each other's feet. It's really hard to be offended when you're washing someone's feet. And learning how to, to labor and walk along with one another, even when we're going through things, we may see differently. We may see certain issues differently. You know, unity doesn't mean we're, we agree on everything. You don't agree with your own spouse on everything, let alone people that, that you're, you're, you're walking in the church with. It's not about homogeneity. Unity in the biblical sense is about our oneness and our our bonds that are, are the Holy Spirit's knit us together as God's people, Jew and Gentile, male and female. And so when we are like we use that uh, that example that you guys were saying where Paul corrected Peter again, it's a Peter is an apostle and he is dissing the Gentiles. He's eating with the Gentiles. And then when the Jewish guys show up, Peter you know, it's kind of like a lunchroom scene. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go with my friends now. And he's afraid of what the Jews are going to think of him for eating with the Gentiles. So he disses his Gentile brothers and goes and hangs out with the Jewish guys. And Paul's like, Peter, you can't do this. We're undoing what Jesus died for. And he's saying, look, you're even influencing Barnabas to go along with this perspective. And so he's correcting it because it's not love. That behavior was not loving and it wasn't building the body up. And so I think as we talk about all these things, um, just remember the impulse is coming from the Holy Spirit's desire to bring us into the love of God for him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself and to maintain the bonds of peace and unity. Because when those break down, the enemy can come in and really break apart what God is trying to build. And I think we're either putting bricks into God's house and helping him build it, or we're taking them out and, and weakening what the Holy Spirit's trying to build. And, you know, you look at the at the landscape right now, and it's not an encouraging view. Um, I know God's bigger, and he's got a huge plan, and, and he's good. 
But man, do we live in some challenging days when it comes on some of these topics that we're talking about tonight. Very, very difficult. Yes, it is. It is hard. And that's why we need to keep going over the word, you know, and having the Holy Spirit um, speak to us through the word. Um, because what you said is important. It is a, there is such a balance in this that, you know, this sounds so harsh to, to hear these words from an apostle of the Lord, the one who wrote a third of the new Testament, Paul to say, reject someone that's divisive after the first or second. To me, I see the fact that he's saying, have a meeting with this person one or two times. That's an act of love. You know, it's trying to maintain unity. And then I think the rest of it comes from relying on discernment from the Holy Spirit, you know, because I do believe that that's where a discerning of spirits, that gift is so important to know what spirit is operating here. And is this person submitting to the Lord or is it just a constant um, conflict? You know, is it a constant bringing in confusion, what have you, whatever the topic would be. But I do think there's a place for it. There is a place for because it says remove this person from your fellowship, um, you know, and so there's a place to do it. But then there's also, like you said, we always have to be weighted most heavily on the side of love. You know, that's really where we need to lean to, especially because we are in our frailty being our flesh and we only see in part. And so we are trying to walk this out. And so we've got to have the whole counsel of God, you know, because there's two perspectives there's both sides of it because what we, we, and I think ultimately it's the bigger picture. It's like what we've talked about all year, the bigger picture, what is God trying to accomplish here? And even with people, you know, because even when we see where Paul talks about rejecting certain believers because of their sins, you know, that's not necessarily indefinitely, you know, indefinitely forever. Once they come back, you know, in, in they've been convicted and they can be restored and they can be brought back into the fellowship. So there is a, but there's a reason for it, you know, where it talks about um, sexual immorality and all these different sins. And he says that he tells us, don't even eat with a person who professes to be a believer, but yet they're continuing in willful sins. Even somebody who's greedy, it says there's, I mean, a list of things, you know, somebody who's abusive not even to eat with them. They call themselves a believer, but they're continuing in these willful sins. Um, you know, and that's, and he says, I'm not saying this about the world because if I was saying this about the world, you'd have to come out of the world. I'm talking about the house of the Lord, you know, because he says judgment begins in the house of God. And so it's, there is like this true call to accountability and to the saint, he says, you know, that we are supposed to judge these matters when there's willful sin or there's dissension, but it's supposed to be done in love and, and in the spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit. It can't be done in our flesh. Our flesh is not going to make the right call on, you know, these judgments, um, because it's, it's not going to be rooted in the right things, which is love, you know, but I think that's the whole key. And, and the other side of it is, again, it's like the balancing act of, if we're going to be, participate in in any way of um, bringing correction or reproof, the Bible tells us we're supposed to take the plank out of our own eye first before we try to deal with the, I'm sorry, the log out of our own eye, but before we deal with the speck in our brother's eye. So, I mean, we really do um, need to examine ourselves first, before, even when we, we might have some issue we need to deal with, but we need to take a step back and Lord, search my heart. 
you know, and let me get these things right in me so that I know I'm not going to deal with this with any wrong motive in my heart and that I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit as much as the other person needs to be submitting to the Holy Spirit because we are all a work in progress for sure. I agree that it wholeheartedly, it all must come from the framework of, from that position of love. Because again, freely receive, we're to freely give. And God loves us, so we are to love one another. But I also think that we need to widen our perspective on love. And how I mean that is, uh, Krista, if you see me going down the wrong path, and I have fallen, oh God forbid, but if you see me on the wrong path, then love me enough to bring the correction so that I can get back right with God, amen. Don't remain silent and I end up in it. That's why Paul was saying, do not eat with them. Don't allow them to believe that what they're doing is acceptable and it's okay. He's absolutely saying, you know, turn away from them from a season so maybe they can get it together. In fact, he says in one place, he says, turn them over to Satan so maybe they can be saved. That is not something that we would say or we would believe or we want to do, but he's sharing us. There's some hard things that we have to do. And that comes from love because I love you enough that I want you to have eternal life. So I'm not going to sit and not say anything. And then the other thing is, I think there's some difference. Jed is absolutely right. Um, oneness or one accord isn't based on we all think the same, we all dress the same, we all talk the same, we all look the same, we all preach the same, we all teach the same. That's not what he's saying. The sameness comes in the understanding of the word and what the word says, the truth of the word, and that we all stand for the truth of the word. But your delivery of the truth is going to be different from mine because we're different people. But we have an understanding of that. In addition, it is, you may say my favorite fruit is apples, and I say mine is oranges. We don't need to fall out and not, uh, and not be able to be sisters because of that. That's, that's something different. But if right is right according to the word of God, and I am preaching wrong that is not right, then sister loved me enough to help me to understand that and go the extra mile. Because genuine love means going the extra mile. And then if I'm not receptive to you going the extra mile and having these conversations with me, then I understand why Paul said, now cut them off. And maybe in doing so, I will seek the Lord or I'll realize, whoa, what is happening here? What's going on? What is happening? So that a change can occur because the love is, love is always hoping for a change for the better in Christ because in and of ourselves, we can never get better. The better only comes through Christ Jesus. I really love also for the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. I love that too, that grace is teaching us something. And it says here, what grace is teaching us denying ungodliness. I love that grace is teaching us that we are to deny 
ungodliness, and worldly lusts. And in grace is also teaching us that we should live soberly and that we should live righteously and godly in this present age. That's what grace is teaching us. This is the point. It's like we've been given grace, which is a gift, the grace that we can't earn. It's a gift, but it's teaching us something. Isn't that incredible just to like ponder that with the Lord, that grace is meant to teach us something? It's what it says. Praise the Lord. And then he, he closes chapter two with speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So we are to be reminding one another of these things in the word. And that's, again, why we just continue to meet week after week to just continue to go through the word, speaking these things, reminding one another. Because again, as you know, you were saying earlier, Pastor Sylvia, we may um, already know much of these things that we hear as we continue through the word. We hear things over and over, but it's good to be reminded even of the things we know or the things we think we know. You know, I, I love hearing the word. I mean, it never gets old, even if I hear it over and over. It's like, just let that word wash over you. You know, let the word hear it over and over and let's not harden our hearts to something or get too familiar with a word that we think we understand it to the degree that it's intended. Because I just believe that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal something new and fresh every time we're hearing the word, if we are um, hearing from a place of desiring to receive from the Lord. Because this word is alive, praise the Lord. Does anybody else have thoughts? As I was listening to everyone speaking, um, the one thing that kept resonating with me was this. You can't say amen to everything. When we say amen, we're in agreement with what you said. And I've, I've heard that so many times and, and people just like, do you know what you amen to? Do you understand what was being said? Do you understand what's being taught? But they're so quick to say amen. And then that is, is, it's gotten like a habit just to say amen. But sometimes you're agreeing to things that you don't understand what you're agreeing to. And it may not be the right thing to be agreeing to. So I'm always kind of mindful of when I'm listening and when I'm hearing the word of God or being whether it's being preached or taught, I got to make sure that it lines up with what it says in my word and make sure that it lines up with, with, with how God is speaking to me. I'm not quick to say amen anymore. I'm not quick to say amen to every situation now. I'm, I'm very meticulous and very listening and to get an understanding, to know that, okay, this is God's word. This man or woman is, spe is speaking God's word. They're speaking truth. Um, they're, they're, they're professing the good news of Jesus Christ. When it's in my heart, in my spirit, and I know that this is a word from God, then I can say amen. But I'm very, very careful not to just use that word so unconsciously, if I can say that, just throw it out there. Amen. No, 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 no. What, what, when did you just amen to? When did you just agree to? Because it do, if it doesn't line up with God's word, then you're agreeing to something that's contrary to his word. So that's one of the things that came to, to my mind too. And, I, and also what you were saying about, or what you all were saying about being in, in the presence of people who want to be divisive. And 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 if they're in the, and they're there and not even to be a party with them, um, because sometimes you people, me, what I've learned is some people don't want to upset the apple cart, so they just kind of like go along with it. 
Um, they don't want to uh, confront that person. They don't want to say anything to that person. And like you said, I like what um, um, uh, Pastor Sylvia said, you know, because if you don't, if you don't open your mouth and say anything, then that means that you're in agreement with it. So I think that sometimes we in love have to say, no, 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 I'm not agreeing with that. I'm not amen to that. Um, and what you did or what, how you're behaving is not of God. It's not of being a Christian. And so therefore I can't sup with you. I can't sit and have a meal with you. And that's coming from the heart because if I don't tell you the truth, then I'm really saying that I don't care. And I do care because I want, I want to show the love of Christ because he's showing it to me. So I want to show it to others as well. So if I have to correct you, and then the first thing someone's supposed to be, well, you're judging me, you're judging me. Well, no, I'm not judging you in the in the in your contents of what you think judgment is. I'm just giving you the truth from my heart that God has placed in my heart through his word and through listening to him. And I'm telling you that you're not, you're not correct. You're not correct. Biblically, you're not correct. Because I'm never going to give you my opinion. I'm only going to give you the word of God. This is what God's word says. And so that's what I kind of got out of everything that I read and everything that I'm hearing. Um, that's what was in my heart. So, Well, amen, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I do think what you said is um, important because amen, actually the meaning of amen is so be it. You know, mm -hmm. and our words are that, you know, we, we speak and it carries life and death and the power of the tongue. So our words are not without meaning when we say things and there's also spiritual authority in them. So I think you, you said something that was important as well for to us to maybe take that to the Lord and, you know, to be mindful of being in agreement in that way. So thank you for sharing that. You know, so when someone says, well, you're not supposed to, that's not true. Paul says we are to judge and he's not talking about the outside world because he says that God's going to do that. But inside the Christian body, we are to judge. We must bring that myth, that lie down. Yes. And what are we judging? According to the word. The word brings the judgment. What we ought to do is condemn I'm not to condemn you, but I am to judge whether that is. That's why Paul gives the example that the prophet is subject to the prophet. And if someone has a word, then everyone, the prophets are to listen and to determine whether that is true or not. Yes, saints, we have been given and are commanded to judge there is so much out there with people saying don't judge lest you be judged you know and and it's not talking about just like what you said it's not speaking of dealing with sin it's speaking of condemnation and that's where those who have distorted and twisted the scriptures you know have spread out false doctrine with and causing much of the church to believe that we can't actually deal with the issues now because everybody wants to think well you're not supposed to judge and we've taken that as if that were truth. And it is not the truth. You know, we are supposed to, in love, um, reproof and bring correction based on the word of God, but deal with our own stuff first. But we are supposed to deal with it. I mean, it's all throughout scripture that there's admonition given and authority spoken of for those who are, are truly walking in the spirit and sharing the word of God to be able to deal with these things. So 
I totally agree. I just wanted to add a little comment to that. Is there anyone else I see Jed unmuting? I have to completely agree. I love it. You know, we, we don't understand this principle. Um, and we, we, you know, Jesus talks about you judge judging trees. A good tree will produce good fruit. Bad tree will produce bad fruit. We just have to be able, it's discernment is what it really is. And it's not, and I think it's really important for us to say, it's not, you're not the one who is the judge of that person. You're not the, the judge, but you are to apply biblical discernment on what people are saying as far as ideas. And you, you bring those foolish ideas that, that empty philosophies and belief systems that exalt themselves against the wisdom of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul says we tear those down. You know, and so your idea isn't you. It's just your idea. You know, it's okay, you know, in, in a sense, like you're you're saying things um, today that you may not believe in five years because what you believe today, God, God can change you. But if we don't judge what people what people are saying in terms of their belief, and it's not judging them, but it's saying, hey, when what I'm hearing, the idea that you're saying compared to what the scripture says, you're actually, you are judging, but you are not their judge, but you are bringing um, the light of the truth of the scripture uh, to come into a, a conflict with the idea and the ideas and the philosophies that are out there in the world. And if we aren't going to do that, you know, who is, who will? step up and actually shine the light if it won't be the church. So I think that it's, I, I just really want to underline what you guys are saying. It's so important that we're not, we're not the judge in terms of what someone's eternal salvation. We're not the one to tell them, uh, you know, this is, we're not judging them, but we're judging ideas or behaviors and saying, Hey, you know, your behaviors aren't lining up with the scripture. Um, and like, I love what Connie was saying. Like I, you know, you may not like that I'm highlighting that from the scripture, but it's well within my my uh, conscience to whether I break bread with you or not. You know, and that's that's just the Bible. And I know that's uncomfortable in our American, uh, you know, 21st century America, but you got to you got to land on what the Bible says. Firmly planted on the rock. Praise the Lord. Well, this has been a very um, wonderful discussion tonight, and um, I believe that the Lord has um, worked in all of our hearts just in hearing much of the feedback. So thank you, Jesus. Well, Pastor Jed, would you mind um, praying and closing us out? Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We love your word, and it challenges us. You change us. Um, we just pray that as we bring this year to a close, Lord, that uh, we're just grateful for the journey to go through the scriptures again, to listen to your truth again, to be inspired by your beauty again, um, and to just allow your Holy Spirit to work within us. And as we're talking tonight about bringing our thought life into um, submission to your will and to your word, uh, we just want to pray over myself, everybody, Lord, that um, where our thoughts are out of alignment, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, uh, in your gentleness and in your in your love, uh, bring us into alignment. That every thought would be brought uh, captive to your feet. That we would think about things that that honor you and please you. And um, as you you told us, 
clean the inside of the cup. The outside will also be clean. So we, do, we just pray for that as we head into um, a new year. We head into uh, the holidays with family and friends, Lord, that we could be effective witnesses of the gospel, effective uh, ambassadors of reconciliation and love, Lord, in your mercy and your story. And we could um, move into this next year growing. Lord, we just pray that we would continue to grow more and more into the be conformed to the image of Jesus and that your life in us would bring fresh healing, perspective, vision, power, grace, Lord, peace as we walk with you, that uh, your life in us would, would be the source of all of our delight and purpose and joy. We thank you for this time, Lord. We pray blessings over Krista for all that she poured out. Thank you for uh, gifting her as a teacher in the body of Christ. And we pray you'd refresh her and bless her family. And we pray all this and bless each person and family represented here and those that couldn't be with us tonight. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you all.